0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with American naturalist and author Cy Montgomery. Cy joined me to talk about her lifelong relationship with animals, including her adventures with the fascinating and highly intelligent invertebrate, the octopus. We explore two of Cy's recent books, How to Be a Good Creature, And The Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness. I'm so delighted to have with me on Skype, the fantastic author and naturalist, Cy Montgomery, who is the author of many, many books, as I mentioned, almost 30, I believe. And we're going to be focusing our attention on a couple, which I think bring to life, size amazing life um, and her insights into the different creatures that she's encountered and observed up close through her work. And these two books that we're going to be looking at and chatting with Sai about are How to Be a Good Creature and also The Soul of an Octopus. And they are um, some of Sai's most recent works. But of course, as I mentioned, there are so many others and they are also very well known and and very well received. So if you are um, interested in the things we're picking up. There's uh, many different elements to explore in Sai's work. I welcome Sai now who's joining us via Skype from New Hampshire in America. Hi there Sai. Hi Amy, how are you? I'm good thank you. How are you doing?
1: Oh it's great to be talking with you in Australia. I I wish I could just use all this time to ask you about how things are there because I haven't (laughs) been in years and I love Australia so much.
0: That's really lovely to hear, and I do. I was reading your book, "How to Be a Good Creature," and uh, I loved your chapter on emus and your time in Australia. When was that? When was your last trip to Australia as well? Was that the same trip? Oh
1: no, I've been back since um, my my first trip was uh, 1983. I went as a volunteer with Earthwatch to um, a place about two hours away from Adelaide called the Brookfield Conservation Park and became so enchanted with your country and the wildlife there that I went home and quit my job and bought a tent and moved to the (laughs) Outback and studied emus. That was in 1984. And um, I've been back a couple of times since then. I went to Queensland Um, where I I met some tree kangaroos at a wonderful uh, tree kangaroo rehab place on my way to Papua New Guinea to do a book on the matchy's tree kangaroo. And I also went back researching um, a chapter in a book called Birdology, um, again to Queensland, uh, to meet your cassowary.
0: Wow. That's so amazing. And I love the fact that you recognised Australia's kind of unique biodiversity and the really amazingly kind of special creatures that in many cases are only found in Australia.
1: Yeah, I always wanted to go to Australia. It was one of those places growing up as a child that I just longed to visit because you've got such different creatures there. And We only have one marsupial here in North America, which is the Virginia opossum didelphus americanus. But it just seems like such a great idea. I mean, I personally have have not had any children, but um, I think most women who have would agree that it would be an excellent idea to give birth to someone the size of a kidney bean who then (laughs) rides around in your belly pocket until they're cute enough to poke their head out and say hello.
0: It is pretty convenient and they are absolutely adorable. (laughs)
1: Honestly, it's it's a really great idea. It's too bad it didn't catch on more in North America.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is really interesting how, you know, Australia was part of that big continent of Gondwana and then it was broken up and we've since seen how evolution has kind of created these different species and you... Referenced in your books about evolution and how these different creatures and species have evolved and how related we are by how many billions of years or millions of years. But I did want to just briefly touch on your formative years that you really highlight in your book, How to Be a Good Creature, before we move into some of the individual animals like the octopus, which we might touch on in more detail. One of the lovely things about How to Be a Good Creature is that I guess it's a memoir, but it's a very unconventional memoir and one that I think is just beautiful and highlights and illuminates your life and your passion in such a wonderful way through the actual animals you've had these lovely friendships and relationships with. And um, I'd just like to, to quote something from the introduction, which is that you say just being with an animal is edifying for each has a knowing that surpasses human understanding. A spider can taste the world with her feet. Birds can see colors. We can't begin to describe a cricket can sing with his legs and listen with his knees. A dog can hear sounds above the level of human hearing and can tell if you're upset, even before you're aware of it yourself. And so you go on to say, what have animals taught me about life, how to be a good creature. And, um, it really does begin to open up your mind to how you perceive the world and and animals. And I just wanted to understand this perspective that you're coming from, which is not really an anthropocentric perspective of you know humans are the dominant force, and we are, you know unique and special and superior to all other living creatures because we can you know kill them. and there is this very uh, dominant type of trope or story that has been perpetuated by humans and built up almost a mythology around how special we are. And of course, we are special in different ways. But you're also in your life and your work bridging that divide between humans and animals, aren't you?
1: Well, yes, when I was little, Gosh! As soon as I could speak, I was able to finally tell my parents that I was not a little girl, but I was a horse. <laughs> and my mother was very concerned and went to the pediatrician. And the pediatrician reassured her that I would grow out of that. And and the pediatrician was right because shortly thereafter, I announced that I was really a dog. <laughs> and my mother thought, you know, somehow I'd been dropped on my head. But um, at a point in my life when I was about three, uh, three years old, my parents wised up and got an actual dog to live in our house with us. And her name was Molly. And we were both youngsters at that time. But as you know, dogs mature much faster than we do. And while I was only three years old, a year later, I was still a kid. But Molly was turning into an adult and I looked up to her as if she was my big sister. And I have always looked up to animals. I've never looked down on animals. I've always felt like when you're in the presence of an animal, you are in the presence of someone who can teach you so much and who can be a fabulous mentor and show you things about our world that we can't with our senses access, but are nonetheless true things about the world. Because they can hear things and see things and smell things and with other with other senses perceive truths about our world that we don't have access to. But we do if we hang out with these animals. And my dream was always to hang out with Molly And have her teach me all the secrets of the wild animals that she could smell and see and hear, but I could not. And although she died before I was out of high school, I did go on and make my career, essentially, following in my older sister's footsteps or paw prints. And that's what I do in all of my books.
0: Mm. And it's so interesting that this was such an early experience for you before you could even speak your your own language, that you had this unspoken connection, I guess, a mental connection and a sensory connection with animals. And I, was yeah, I think in, yeah. most children do, yeah. though, don't you think?
1: I mean, a lot of children, children's dreams are full of animals, children instantly will reach for and speak to animals children also recognized long before it was recognized by scientists that animals are individuals we used to scientists were not even supposed to name their study animals but gave them numbers and jane goodall in 1960 got in big trouble nobody wanted to publish her super important papers about tool use and chimpanzees because she named each individual chimp, instead of numbering them as if they were they were interchangeable. But children know this. And I think that it comes from being a species that, until very recently, we're all hunter-gatherers. And if you did not pay attention to animals and to the rest of the natural world, you were, you were toast. That was the end of you. And I think it's unfortunate that in, in our society, a lot of people squelch that natural knowledge and affinity that children have for our fellow creatures. I I think if children ran the world and adults didn't come mess it up, (laughs) I don't think so many of us would be eating animals and destroying their
0: habitats, and we wouldn't have Mm. (laughs) COVID-19. Well, you referenced there my interview from last week, which was with David Quarman, and we were talking exactly about that, which is a human's interference with wild animals and their habitats and and how that leads to zoonotic spillovers, which are obviously very disturbing. You raised there such a really fascinating point, and it did make me reflect on my childhood, which I actually hadn't really done. And um, I certainly had close relationships with the animals that I encountered but I hadn't really thought all that deeply about what it meant to me like it did mean a lot to me at the time but I had this really lovely friendship with a guinea pig or a hamster as you would call them in America called, yeah called Sparky and he to me was one of my best friends and I felt like we had an unspoken connection and language and he understood me probably better than most other people and, um, and similarly when I went on camp, I think it was in when I was eight years old, um, we went to a pig farm which was a kind of interesting place to send uh, children and there were a whole group of <laughs> new piglets just born and everyone was picking them up and hugging them and, you know, fascinated by the babies and I kind of went over and walked out to look at the other pens where the adults were and there was this one really big, really large pig that i was fascinated by and drawn to and um the pig couldn't actually move because they'd been fed so much that um they were in pain and they were about to be sent oh, off oh. yeah they're about to be sent off to slaughter and I spent such a long time just standing there looking at this pig and kind of, I guess, kind of communicating in the only way I knew how when I was eight and, um, you know, I took photos of it to remember it by because I felt like I understood its pain and anguish when it was sitting there because it did, I could sense it and um, from that very moment that made me vegetarian, so. <laughs> Yay,
1: yeah, good for you. Well, that's yeah. why you're... So good looking um, <laughs> and strong and healthy. Hopefully, and right now we're actually in America. Um, a lot of the slaughterhouses and meat packing plants and stuff, because of COVID nineteen, yeah. um, are closing down, and there's a meat shortage. And I feel like oh. come on over and come to the to the. Vegetarian side, we'll show you some delicious things we'd love to share with you.
0: (laughs) Come over to the light, yeah. (laughs) Right. I'm really proud because, um, yeah, I I think it's very easy to have a balanced diet if you're if you have the information available to you about how to do that as a vegetarian. So, um, yeah, it's lovely to see, and and that was something that I felt I didn't really have to question or think about. I just changed my behaviour and and I felt like that empathetic emotional connection that I as a child had was strong and I wondered whether you when you've been encountering these animals particularly when you mentioned there you're really one of your closest friends in life was Christopher Hogwood one of your pigs and he just sounded so amazing and I wondered (laughs) about that unspoken connection that you had and the understanding you had about the different kind of noises that he would make to, to greet different people.
1: Yes. Oh, gosh, Amy, you would have loved him. And yeah. I think he would have loved you. <laughs> yeah, he had um, special greetings for special people. He had a deep grunt for my husband, Howard. Um, he had a special grunt for the little girls who lived next door. He had one friend who she died at age 14. Her name was Kelly, and she had a, a brain tumor. And even as she was very sick and going through chemo, her parents would bring this, this thin, thin, frail, ill little girl over to my 750-pound pig whose head alone probably weighed 100 pounds with his sharp tusks and be absolutely certain that she would be treated with great tenderness. And he had a special, very gentle grunt for her. And he was super strong. I mean, if he felt like it, he'd just knock over the entire wood pile by touching it with his nose. Hmm. He went over to to the house and touched one of the clapboards with his nose and it flew off you know he was super super strong but he never hurt any of the children that he was friends with we had friends in wheelchairs and you could see how to a, a pig it might seem very amusing to knock over the wheelchair and watch the person spill out and all that kind of stuff but no he understood that the person in the wheelchair doesn't want that. Mm. And although he knocked over the wood pile, which annoyed us, he, he knew that a person in a wheelchair is different from watching, you know, the delight of all those logs going everywhere. And he was super gentle with, with everyone, actually. He was wonderful. And there was one guy who was like his super special friend, our friend Ray. Um, Ray weighed 300 pounds. And he only came over a couple of a times in the course of several years, but Christopher Hogwood remembered him, and I think he felt like, man, this guy knows where the food is, he's my special friend, and he gave Ray these incredibly appreciative, deep grunts that he gave to absolutely no one else, and Howard and I were astonished that he remembered what Ray looked like. (laughs) 'Cause you know, he would come over and then you wouldn't see him for years and there he would be again and he'd give him that special grant. But they know individual people and they know who their who their friends are.
0: And that's that thing that we make assumptions about is that animals, you know, have a kind of basic understanding because they're not speaking our specific language, that perhaps they're not seeing the world As we are, and maybe they're not, but they're actually seeing it in a very sophisticated way, as you've stated, with their ability to relate to to other beings, including humans, and also to have that memory and that special individual relationship with each different person.
1: Yes, absolutely. The, the things with, with animals, you know, the animals that we get along with best do see the world in a similar way that we do. I mean, pigs actually are so like us that you can get a pig valve in your heart. Mm. You know, um, you can, our skin is so similar that doctors use their skin to graft onto burn victims. They're very, very similar to us. But they also have these super senses, and Chris could smell stuff from miles away, and you could see him thinking about this stuff. He he also was mechanically very uh, talented, and he learned how to open his own pen by threading his nose disc through the slats of his gate and moving the... Uh, the um, the latch that didn't just have to be moved to the side, it had to be twisted and then moved. He figured out how to do that from the opposite side, so he couldn't even see what he was doing. And he would do this, and then he would go off to people's vegetable gardens that he'd been smelling. You know, the information about what was ripe in the garden was coming on the air. And he would he would tra- travel, I mean, thank God he did not go for miles, but he traveled pretty impressive distances, and he would show up in people's vegetable gardens. But he was so agreeable that even as he was trashing your vegetable garden, he would make friends with you. And that's how I was able to meet a lot of our neighbors here in Hancock, because I'm pretty shy. But by the time I showed up, by the time they figured out this was my pig and had called me and I came rushing over, Christopher Hogwood had already charmed them. And so I
0: had a new friend. That's amazing. what a great icebreaker
1: <laughs> yeah I know gosh, I used to be scared to go to parties because you never know what to say to people. Mm. They're talking about stuff I don't I don't know from. but if you have a pig, you could just point to something on their plate that they haven't eaten saying my pig would like that. And then you've got a whole <laughs> conversation. Oh, what else does he like? And then the next thing you know, they're coming over to your house with their stale bagels and their freezer-burned ice cream to watch your pig eat, which is, a, we call it dinner and a show, mm. because it's so much fun to watch someone enjoy themselves so much and we Yankees here in, in New England, we hate the idea of throwing away perfectly good food just because it's a little bit stale or has a little touch of mold. But watching someone enjoy the food that you didn't know what to do with, there's really nothing more delightful <laughs> except po- possibly pig spa, which was the other thing that that we did a lot with Christopher. And this is how I made friends with children. I, I hadn't had many child friends growing up. I was an only child and my father was an army general and on the army base, you didn't want to have, you know, the enlisted men's children. They were afraid to play with the general's daughter. And I went to school off base. And anyway, so I managed to get to be like 30 years old without having many children friends in my life. But Christopher Hogwood's the one who taught me how much fun kids are. And he did this by instigating pig spa. And all the neighborhood kids would do this, but particularly the little girls next door who really started it with him. We would get a big bucket of soapy water and we'd get a whole bunch of treats. And uh, Chris loved a warm soapy bath and he would lie down and we would scrub him and we would rub the stuff on his hooves to make them gleam. And we would brush him and we would braid the hair on his tail. And then we would all eat chocolate donuts. (laughs) (laughs) So it was great. And he's the one that taught me what great friends children can be, which I'd never known.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful and <laughs> not that surprising. I feel like that's so lovely that, that children do have that instant connection with pigs and other animals. And some children might be a little bit apprehensive, but it's not that hard once you see that an animal is friendly and it's not threatening to, to make that connection with them. And I remember in your book when you were referring to animals and how, you know, in your specific circumstances you've found them to be less threatening and and less scary per se than human beings have been
1: oh absolutely i mean when when you're a kid i don't know if this happened to you but i i was just constantly astonished at how mean people were
0: mm.
1: i mean why what, what is the benefit of being mean to anyone i was astonished that people Lie like all the time, um, and I, I don't think all people are horrible. i, I married one. Um, <laughs> I, I have you know a number of wonderful human friends, uh, but now animals are capable of lying, by the way, but they—they don't—they don't do it to us as much as we do it to each other, and. If you just pay attention to them, they reward that attention in such a marvelous way by giving you entree into another piece of the world that you would never otherwise get to know.
0: Absolutely. That's so true. Um, I just want to briefly touch on emus before we get to the octopus because that's a lovely segue. Um, I, just, I wanted to ask about emus because in Australia, not all people, but I know that a lot of people who, who wouldn't have met an emu or kind of had a... a an interaction with an emu may not really understand their personality and their characteristics and their behaviours. And I I think a lot of their behaviours are taken at face value that perhaps they're, you know, scaredy cats that, you know, are frightened about any kind of jump or sound and, and they're often really diminished or treated in a diminished way because people think that they're not particularly intelligent. And I was just wondering if you could share with us some of the observations you made when you established this really great rapport with three funny and really lovely uh, emus in Australia in the outback. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, I remember the first sight I I ever caught of them at at close range. I was... um, I was working at Brookfield Conservation Park. I had, had gone there just so drawn to want to be in Australia with these. I hadn't decided what to to study yet. And so I was helping a graduate student. Um, she was in another part of the park, and I was in this part, and I was um, harvesting some plants for um, a nitrogen study. And suddenly, for some reason, I looked up, and these three birds, taller than a man were walking right by me i couldn't believe it if i had if an angel had appeared in front of me at that moment i couldn't have been more astonished or delighted um they were curious they were curious about me and that's a mark of intelligence mm. and everything about them seemed so unlikely i mean we we do not have any rat birds here in the united states um, flightless birds. I mean, the idea of birds with little eight-inch wing stumps that hang like a comical afterthought off of their haystack-looking bodies. The feathers on an emu look unlike the feathers that you see on any birds in the in the States. Everything about them was alien and exciting, and so I thought, wow, you know, I, I would love to study these guys. But I didn't think I'd actually be able to follow them around but I could. And the reason I could was that I let them see me rather than try to sneak after them. I mean, their eyesight is like the average bird's eyesight's more than 40 times better than ours. You You can't sneak up on them. You have to let them know that there you are and that you're harmless. And very quickly, they learned that I was harmless and let me walk with them almost like, I mean without social distancing. (laughs) Um, And it was marvelous, and I would just stroll over the outback with these emus watching every single thing they did, and everything was a revelation. But one of the, um, the funnest, coolest things I saw was their sense of humor. One day, they came up by Dean Newell's house, who was the park ranger, and he had a dog out on a chain. Well, these emus knew about that chain, knew about that dog, knew how long the chain was, and they they ran up in front of the dog, knowing that the dog was going to rush out, hit the you know the end of the chain, sputter, barking, desperate to get to them, and they just did this like head neck dance. They kicked up their feet and they. They moved their little wing stumps forward and they threw their necks back, and the dog was going ballistic and they were, they thought this was hilarious. They did this for a while, and then they just calmly strolled away and sat down and preened themselves the same way that you would like rub your fingernails on your vest and blow on them or something to uh wasn't that a pretty funny joke we- <laughs> We pulled on that guy anyway that that was so funny because it was so similar to what a human would find hilarious
0: mm. and
1: they they let me see that um i I went into this study, not, not knowing any of the ideas that that people had about emus. I didn't know I was going to study them. I went in as a blank slate, you know, yeah, and um. That interestingly, I mean, I'm not going to compare myself with the great Jane Goodall, but that is how Jane Goodall went into the field studying chimpanzees. She was not trained as a scientist. She'd been a secretary. You know, Diane Fossey, when she went to study the mountain gorillas in Rwanda, she wasn't trained as a scientist. She was an occupational therapist. So sometimes just going in... And letting the animal teach you, not what other people say about them, not what other scientists even have found out about them, but just let the animal be your teacher. There's this great saying that kind of runs my life, and you probably heard this before, but it goes uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. And for me, the teacher. Sometimes has two legs, but sometimes has four or six or eight or or
0: none. Mm, that's so true. I, I think that's like the case with animals and just anything in life is that you have to be ready and then you, you learn those lessons and the possibilities that are opened up with an interaction or an experience. And that brings us to your experiences with octopuses, which are the feature of such a brilliant book. I know you've probably heard this so many times, but it it was really brilliant and amazing and eye-opening and fascinating and so relatable. And not many people would get the opportunity, I think, to interact with an octopus like you have. And they might've done it at a distance at an aquarium, but they may not have had the chance to actually touch an octopus and have that basic back and forth interaction. And so I wanted to ask about, what brought you to to meet an octopus? Athena was the first one, I believe, that you met at the New England yeah. Aquarium. And, and then how that opened up your thinking about issues of things like consciousness and how you as a human can begin to understand and relate and tap into the consciousness of an octopus.
1: Well, this was a, a book that I waited a long time to write. I, for a long time, I thought, one day I want to write about the the kind of animal life that is most numerous on the planet, but that very few people seem to know or care about, and mm-hmm. that is invertebrates, particularly marine invertebrates. Now, I had written a, a a book for young readers on tarantulas, and I'd gotten to know some tarantulas, another eight-legger. I've got a thing for the eight-leggers. <laughs> um, but You know, most of animal life on this planet lives in the sea and has no backbone. What's their life like? I really, really wanted to explore this, but I didn't, I mean, frankly, I did not think I was smart enough to even attempt it for a very long time. But finally, I felt like the time is now, I am going to meet a marine invertebrate and see If I can make one my friend. So in March of 2011, on this beautiful sunny day where people were outside licking ice cream cones, I went into the cool, damp halls of the New England Aquarium and asked one of the keepers if he would lift the lid to the tank where Athena, the giant Pacific octopus, was living. And I was Floored by what happened, the minute she saw me, her eyes swiveled in its socket and locked into mine. She looked at my face, and that, for one thing, is amazing because their face and our face—they're very different. Octopuses are arranged so differently than we are. Mm. You know, their mouth is in their armpits. You know, we go head, body, limbs. They go body, head, limbs. Many people think that the 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 octopus's head is not where it actually is. But the octopus knew where my eyes were and she locked onto those eyes. She turned bright red, which is the color of an excited octopus. And she immediately left her lair and oozed over to get closer to me. And soon I saw her arms boiling up out of the water and these questing white suckers reaching for my arms. And I asked, can I touch her? And the Aquarius, Scott Dowd, who is still my dear friend, said, sure, go ahead. So I plunged my hands and arms into the very cold water and instantly my hands and arms were covered with dozens of these soft, questing suckers. And the suckers, you know, I realized not everybody would like this, but um, the suckers are tasting you as well as feeling you. And had this happened with a person I had just met to discover that they were tasting me so early in our relationship would have been distressing, but I was delighted that this was happening with Athena because it meant that she was just as curious about me as I was about her. And she found me of such interest that she began to pull me into the tank. I mean, not in a a scary way, not like in... Victor Hugo toiler of the seaway thinking yeah. that you know the horrible octopus is going to kill you it wasn't like that it was more like i want to know more about this person and she <laughs> let me pet her head which was also very cool they they don't always let you pet their head and in fact she had never let a stranger pet her head before and then she began to turn white beneath my touch and i felt her relaxing And I later discovered that white is the color of a relaxed octopus. So right away, you know, I didn't know if she considered me a friend, but I know that she liked the fact that I was there. So I was hooked (laughs) and I came back again and again but unfortunately you know octopuses don't live very long and a giant pacific octopus starts out the size of a grain of rice so by the time you meet one in an aquarium it's a large animal and they only are going to live three to five years tops so you're not gonna know an octopus very long before it breaks your heart and I'd only been there three or four times before she she died Um, but then the next octopus Octavia I got to know her from the time shortly after she arrived at the aquarium until almost the day she died. And I got to know other octopuses as well at the aquarium. And I learned to scuba dive. So I got to meet wild octopuses. And boy, Australia has so much going for it. You, of course, have not only do you have the the blue ring, the, the blue ringed octopus, which we should warn people not to touch. Yeah. Because they're very, very venomous and they they can kill you without even trying. I mean, your first symptom is that you're dead a lot of times, and there's no antivenom for them. Um, but you also have an incredible place called Octopolis, where a whole bunch of octopus tetricus called the gloomy octopus, hang out. And this is extensively studied, and one day, oh, my gosh, when this COVID-19 thing goes away, I want to get on a plane and come and <laughs> and dive up Octopolis and, and learn more from the people who've been studying the animals there. But, you know, even though that's a different octopus species, octopus everywhere are super intelligent. And one of the ways they show their intelligence is that they love to play with objects. They love to explore objects. So one of the things that the octopuses at Octopolis are doing um, is that the, the folks who are studying them have all kinds of GoPros out filming them And one of the most common things that you see on film is one octopus stealing from another octopus one of the GoPros.
0: (laughs) That's hilarious. So
1: they love to play with stuff. And in captivity, what people do to amuse their octopus is they give them the same kind of toys that we give to our children. They love to play with Mr. Potato Head. They love to play with Legos. Mm. They, They love to snake their arms into little tubes. They love unscrew jars and sometimes will screw the lid back on just to amuse themselves
0: that's so amazing and you bring out there so many features of the octopus and um, i'd love to pick up on the fact that as you say Octopuses are individuals with different personalities. And as you also say, octopuses realise that humans are individuals too and that they like some people and then they dislike others and they behave differently based on that relationship of like-dislike, trust-distrust.
1: Yes, it's so amazing. This, this was first demonstrated scientifically at the Seattle Aquarium in which they took two groups of volunteers identically dressed And the the, um, octopuses would be exposed to one group of volunteers and um, those people would give the octopus a delicious fish. And then the octopus would meet another group of volunteers and those people would touch the octopus with a bristly stick, which they don't like. And very quickly, the octopuses learned just looking up through the water without even tasting the people. Even if you left your tasty fish at home, the octopus would look up at the water and come toward you. Oh, here's my friend. This is you know, somebody who's done something fun and nice with me. They would look at the people who had touched with the bristly stick, even if the bristly stick had been left at home. They'd look at that person and they would jet away from them. Oh, I'm getting the heck out of here. They would often make an eye bar to disguise their eye, which is what they do to protect themselves from... Um, like evil predators or someone who's going to do something bad. The eye bar makes their eye look bigger and they look like a bigger animal. And many of them would also take their funnel and blast freezing cold salt water into the faces of the people who had touched them with that nasty bristly stick.
0: (laughs) That's so wonderful. And uh, I know that even your friend got a blast of that water in her face.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 And, some, you know, sometimes they blast it in your face the same way a, a little boy will splash you with water in the swimming pool. Sometimes mm. they'll do it to play. Um, and they do use their jet uh, to to play with toys. Sometimes they amuse themselves by blasting like a, a floating object with their jet and, and cause the floating object to um, travel along the trajectory that the filter is, is sending the water in a stream. It's almost like bouncing the ball. And then they'll blast it again, it'll come back, and they'll blast it again, it'll come back. Um, sometimes they'll blast butterflies. Um, they'll look up through, they don't want to eat the butterfly, they don't eat butterflies, but they'll look up through the water, see a butterfly, and just blast it with water to see what it'll do. And the butterfly flies off frightened. It's just like you know little boys that 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 run after pigeons in the park to make them fly. And they're they're really it's so amazing that here's somebody separated from us by half a billion years of evolution, and and yet they often like the same kinds of things that we do, even though they can taste with their skin and they've got blue blood and they have three hearts and their their brain is a ring around. Their throat. They still can be friends with us because we have something to offer them. And that is that we both like to play.
0: Mm. Yeah, and uh, when you were talking about that touch between yourself and Athena and then, of course, you did have those subsequent interactions with Octavia, you talk about and and theorise around the idea of them being able to sense our neurotransmitters and the chemicals and contents of our blood and that's another way that they interact and assess us.
1: Yeah, I... I don't think anyone has done any scientific testing of of that idea, but it does make sense. Um, Their chemoreception abilities are fantastic. They can taste with all of their skin, including like their eyelids. But that sense of taste of chemoreception is most exquisitely developed in the suckers. And they spent a lot of time exploring the inside of my arms. And as you know, from well, from kangaroos licking the the inside of their arms, which they do to cool off, that there's a lot of blood vessels close to the surface there mm. and along our wrists, too, as as you know. And the octopuses that I knew very much liked that. And I wondered, could they taste beneath my skin to taste my blood? I first got that idea after one time I, I stubbed my toe on my way up the little um, step ladder that we used to stand on to lean over the octopus tank, and it hurt. And when you're in pain, your neurotransmitters change. You're you're flooded with essentially the pain that that you feel. It's it can be measured in your blood. And boy, was she interested in me then? That was that was really pretty fascinating and another instance too made me wonder about this my friend Anna um, who was this wonderful teenager and she loved octopus she was a volunteer at the aquarium she was on a lot of different medicines she had Asperger's and she had all kinds of little physical problems And one day Kali, who was a totally sweet octopus bit her Mm-hmm. And we were floored. She didn't envenomate her. She purposely did not envenomate her. And it wasn't a bad bite. It was like a parakeet biting you. But still, I mean, oh, my gosh, what happened? Well, what had happened? I wondered, like, what, what was different about Anna today that wasn't true the week before and the week before and the week before all these other times that Kali had not bitten her and had no interest in biting her? Well, she had just had a major change in medicine. And I wonder if Kali thought that she could taste, she tasted funny Mm. and wanted to explore that a little more with her beak.
0: That's so, so interesting and fascinating. And it raises that point where, of course, there are scientists studying octopuses, but there are so many things that are yet to be fully explored and understood. And um, one of the areas that I'd also like to touch on is this kind of immeasurable or and not to discount it I actually think it's probably more important in a way the qualitative type of research that you can do as you do by observing and interacting with an octopus like Octavia which you write about and and you write that even when you had to head over to a conference one week so you didn't get to see Octavia, the response that you got from her when you returned was so enthusiastic that there seemed to be this budding and building friendship and relationship between you two.
1: Yeah, and I was shocked. I did not expect that. I mean, I, I it was she showing me this. It wasn't me projecting my hopes or beliefs onto her. I was stunned. Mm. And one of my dear friends, Wilson Menashe, who was a, an engineer, he, was a, um, he had many patents to his name. And he was always saying, hey, you know, don't overthink this. And um, he, he wasn't an oovy groovy kind of guy. You know? <laughs> and uh, he was floored at some of the stuff that he saw happen not projecting onto the octopus things that we believed or hoped, but the octopus was revealing to us things we did not expect.
0: Yeah, exactly. And some of those interesting things that are revealing from an octopus, and I guess maybe they give away some of the game at times, um, is the way that they're their flesh or skin colour changes so quickly and is also so variable in its colour and patterns and you write about that and how unique and special and um, also, I guess, illuminating and indicative it can be when you are interacting with an octopus.
1: Honestly, man, I wish I knew what all the colour changes meant. It's amazing to watch this stuff. I know some of them, at least... The individuals that I knew, you know, they, they get red with excitement, excitement if they're mad or excitement if they're happy. The same way a person kind of can, can get red with excitement when they're mad or they're happy. Mm. And they, they can go white when they're feeling calm and relaxed. Another thing that I've observed is that frequently when an octopus is trying to solve a problem, it will change all kinds of colors like a person wrinkling their brow and i i wonder if by engaging their chromatophores in that way you know why we wrinkle our brows is that it actually changes the blood flow to our brains that's why Mm. we do that not to just look funny (laughs) um and and and, you know when when we smile it, it it also um It it literally makes you happier to smile because of the way the muscles push on your nerves and um, move your blood around and stuff like that. But uh, I'm still friends, by the way, with with octopuses at the aquarium. Unfortunately, I can't go there now, but the day before the aquarium was closed, I went to see my friend Rudy, who's a a very wonderful, affectionate octopus. But there's another octopus there, um, Edmund, who's so shy, he hardly ever comes out. So they they really all are very distinctive and they recognize that we're distinctive too. It amazes me that you can have a meeting of, a, of the minds a, across mm-hmm. this enormous evolutionary divide. And to me, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the book resonated with people because I think we're hungry for connection with the rest of animate life on this earth. And to know that, yeah, a person can be friends with an octopus. Our last shared ancestor was back when everybody was a tube. <laughs> and that, that to me shows that our world is, is so shockingly alive so thrillingly vibrant, so conscious and so sacred and so holy that it demands a different response to the natural world than what most of humanity is showing right now.
0: It's so true. It's a completely, a a total paradigm shift really but from where we currently sit um, as a majority Uh, I know there's definitely exceptions, but it is um, disturbing to still think that we see ourselves as this kind of separate entity with our environment and then nature is there to provide for us, to give us nourishment and for us to appreciate or to be fearful of, depending on the situation. Um, It's much more obvious when you're in a position like you are to see everything is interconnected and everything is being open and and a a kind of world of curiosity
1: yeah I, i i i agree most older traditions including all the major religions though tell us that we and everything else alive on this earth share the same parent so would you treat your siblings the way humans treat animals? No. Um would you the worst thing I think that you, you, you could do to annoy the creator would be to treat his or her creation disrespectfully. Um instead it's it's much better to be embedded in a family in, in which you respect and really reverence everybody else on the planet. And we feel more at home here. I don't want to be alone on some pinnacle. That's a lonely place to be. And, mm. and I feel bad for people who only have friends of one species. That That would be like if you only listened to one piece of music your whole life or if you only ate one food.
0: Yeah, it would be a very very one-dimensional world, wouldn't it? Sensorially, yes. but also as you do say, emotionally and morally as well.
1: Yeah. And the gifts that animals have given me I w- I would have nothing. I would be nothing if it weren't for the animals that have let let me into their lives and 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 shown me um their glory. They've been everything to me my, my whole life. And often we feel when, when we meet an animal doing the same, the same thing that we do, it, it just reinforces that idea of, of kinship. But I love also how different we are. You know, I love that, that diversity. I love that I can play a game with somebody who can taste with their suckers and can change color and squirt ink. You know, <laughs> I love it that I have a friend like that. And yet we can have a, a meeting in the minds and we can enjoy our, our time together. Mm. And, you know, people say, well, you're just, you're just anthropomorphizing. You're just projecting onto the animal what you feel. I know that is not true because I came not expecting anything, just open to what the animal would show me. And I saw the effort to which the octopuses would go to include me in play. And finally, how Octavia went to a great deal of effort to say goodbye when she was about to die. I certainly did not expect that, and neither did did my friend Wilson, the the engineer. But when she was old and sick, and we knew that her life would soon be over, uh, the Aquarius Bill Murphy moved her from her exhibit to a, a darker, calmer place that was more like the darkness of the den where an octopus would hole up for the last weeks and days of his or her life. And when he did this, he asked an assistant to go in and move Octavia. And Octavia tasted the assistant and didn't know him, didn't want anything to do with him, even though she was old and near death, she was still strong. Because those suckers, each sucker on a, on a big male, you can get a sucker that's three and a half inches in, in diameter, and that can lift 30 pounds. And they have 200 suckers on each of their eight arms. So this is a tremendously strong animal, even in her last days. So Octavia wasn't moving. So then Bill, the keeper who saw her every day, he reached his hand in, and she tasted his skin And she had been kind of holed up in her den, taking care of her eggs. She laid eggs, but they were not fertile for nine months. And for an animal who lives three to five years, nine months is the equivalent of decades. Mm. So she hadn't looked up to see him or tasted his skin for nine months, for decades. It was actually longer than nine months now that I remember. I think it was 10 or even longer. Anyway. She tasted him and remembered him and trusted him and let go and let Bill move her. And the next week I went in with Wilson Menashe, the volunteer who I was telling you about, and we wondered if she would remember us. And we looked into the the barrel where she was and she looked up at us and even though she was sick and old and dying, she she had an infected eye that was all swollen she rose to the top of the of her new tank or the barrel and reached out to touch us and to hold on to us and we offered her a fish but she didn't want the fish she dropped the fish she took it and then just dropped it she wanted to to touch us and look at us and just stayed at the top of the tank just looking at us for quite a long time before she ran out of energy and sank back to the bottom. And I was struck by how almost identical this was to a scene described years later in a book called Mama's Last Hug by Franz Deval. And he described an, an aging chimpanzee who was on her death nest And one of her old friends, who she hadn't seen in years, came to say goodbye to her. And there's video of this. And the sick, dying mama chimpanzee sees her friend. Her her face breaks out in a huge smile. She throws her arms around him. He embraces her. It is the most moving thing you ever saw. But I experienced this identical thing in an octopus.
0: It's really amazing and, yeah, I can hear how it moves you and certainly I've, in your book, can read how it, it has touched your life and how each individual octopus has really left an impact and how, as you say, you've learned something from every one of them and had this really special bond and it's just so beautiful to hear and I feel like we're privileged to hear that because it's not something that uh, too many humans would have had the the privilege of having so um, I really appreciate how open and compassionate you've been and also really generous to share with us these personal experiences that you've had.
1: Well Amy it's been such a joy talking with you and thank you for sharing with me about Sparky and um, and the, the pig that you met and how you became a vegetarian. and, and you're really sensitive, wonderful kind penetrating questions.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It was really lovely to hear that final story and how how you had that kind of closure and beautiful connection. So thank you so much for being so open and also so lovely. And congratulations, I've got to say, for all of the work you're doing, because I do think that it is um, opening up this world to so many more people who wouldn't have that access and who might then be inspired to follow what you are doing and to have their own experiences and connections connections with the different animals that they have access to in their lives.
1: Yeah, that is exactly my hope. Right on.
0: Yeah, I hope that does happen and do stay well and safe over there in America in this uh, really tough time with the pandemic.
1: Yeah, thank you. Same to you.
0: I've been speaking there with Simon Montgomery, a naturalist and an author of, uh, gosh, around 28 books. But don't quote me on that because Cy uh, is very prolific and she's done some amazing work, including TED Talks, if you wanted to check that out. You could also um, search for her work on YouTube and uh, you can read the books that we have been discussing, The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness, and uh, the book that we started off with, which is How to Be a Good, creature and it is just so beautiful. And you will there be introduced to some of the other really special creatures that Sai has had the privilege of meeting and spending time with and who are really part of her family in many ways. So I know that so many of you listening will have had animals, including dogs and cats and and others that are part of your family. So thank you so much for being with us and thanks to Sai for spending that time with us today. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.